0: Absolute truth Jihad Radio is 100% percent crowd big funny, and therefore fearless, mm-hmm. great independent. Yes. Please help us sustain you that way. Truth Jihad Radio at my Substack. Please, Kevin Barrett. Help it continue. Go to truth com, jihad. or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to for only four bucks truth a month. You jihad get early access, gmail plus free downloads. Once again, that's TruthJihad.com. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, where we consider the most interesting ideas and people that you've never heard about in the mainstream media. Or if you have, they've been vilified, distorted, or otherwise warped and spun beyond all recognition. I'm Kevin Barrett from TruthJihad.com, where you can subscribe and get early access and free downloads to all these shows. Bringing on a favorite regular guest. Professor David Skirbina of the University of Michigan at Dearborn. He is an expert on the philosophy of technology, specifically the metaphysics of technology, and he's written a book with that title. He is also an expert on panpsychism, the philosophy that says that everything in the universe has a degree of consciousness. And he has edited the Unabomber, that is Ted Kaczynski's post-prison book, which uh is entitled What's it, Technological Slavery, which wasn't the title that Kaczynski wanted, but he was willing to live with it. Anyway, uh let's get to it Oh, and I forgot about the uh the, the Jesus hoax. Another fascinating conspiracy theory there. Um and of all that work, the only that's the only one that I, I don't think I really buy into. But the rest of it, uh I find a lot of your work hard to refute. So anyway, hey, welcome, David Scribina. How are you doing?
1: Hey, great. Thanks, Kevin. I, I guess like three out of four is not too bad with you.
0: You're doing pretty well, yeah, because I, I dismiss an awful lot of what I hear as as BS, and uh, that's not what I do to most of what I hear from you. And even that Jesus Hoax book is absolutely worth considering and reading and, and thinking about. So, boy, where where should we start? You know, the most recent one that I looked at was the uh, Ted Kaczynski book, Technological Slavery. And it's I think it's interesting, and I think you have a point when you introduce it, saying that Ted Kaczynski, whatever you think about his choice of of people that he went around murdering, and I'm uh, not particularly a fan of that, but whatever you may think about some of his work and his deeds in life, his writing is very much worth considering, and nobody in the media and the intelligentsia seems to be willing to admit that.
1: Well right that's I think that's very true you know he 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 he's a very logical intelligent guy he's he's very well read he he knows what he's he knows what he's saying he makes very clear and lucid points uh, i think anybody who's read the the manifesto you know has an idea of uh how logical he can think so he has some really compelling ideas they're not entirely original ideas but uh but that's okay i mean there's a a pretty good history of critiques of the technological system and Kaczynski is one of the latest ones, and he's uh, one of the harshest ones. But uh, but that's okay. He justifies his uh, his position, and he takes a very strong line. And and there's a lot to be said for his argument, truthfully.
0: Right. And and for people who haven't read it, and I, I would think a, a high percentage of my listeners probably have at some point read the so-called Unabomber manifesto, which uh, just to refresh people's memories was published in the Washington Post and New York Times. Uh, back in whenever it was in the nineties that he was caught and it was actually his brother seeing the publication of his manifesto and saying, Hey, I think, I think that's my brother that wrote that. And, uh, then later getting in touch with the FBI that led to his being uh, arrested, charged and railroaded in a, a sham trial, an absolutely disgusting, uh, trial in which he was not uh, given the chance to defend himself the way he wanted to. But anyway, uh, that manifesto argues that uh, we're not uh, suited to the level of technology that we have now, The technology is out of control and making our lives miserable. It's only going to get worse, and we need a revolution to break down and and knock out this kind of uh, technological enslavement that we face today. And I think it's a a strong argument as far as pointing out that technology – Uh, has created uh, uh, so many problems that one almost would wish that it would largely disappear. Uh, But as far as the notion that we can have some kind of revolution against it, uh, that this is a practical thing, and and specifically if you then match that up with his bombing people, it starts to seem a little uh, tenuous.
1: Um, Right. You know, so – well, yeah. So, so you have a very unnatural system, right? It's unnatural for people. It's unnatural for the planet, and that's why it seems to be causing so much trouble. You know, nobody has any evolutionary history with uh, with an advanced technological system of the of the kind that we deal with on a regular basis. Um, so, so what we have, you know, is a, is a kind of a, I mean, some people would say that it's a it's like an uh, an autonomous system. It's like a self-growing system where it's almost Unfortunately, it's almost beyond our control where things happen, and we don't really plan them to happen that way, but they just happen nonetheless. It's like the thing has its own momentum. It's a very strange, very strange process, actually. Yes, and, and, and the downside
0: often outweighs the upside. We're told, oh, new technology promises wonderful things, and over and over we find that the bad side outweighs the good.
1: Well, exactly right. You maybe solve one problem, but you introduce three new ones, or you know, in the long run, you uh, you, you were expecting one thing, in the long run, you get the opposite of what you were expecting. We see that happen a lot with uh, with technological solutions. So it's a it's a very complex uh, thing that we cannot predict, we cannot control it, and it's and it's kind of growing rapidly, uh, sort of beyond our ability to 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 dictate what happens. So, I mean, when you're if you're confronted with that kind of situation, and the and the, and the system poses an, a kind of existential risk to people, either through you know toxins in the in the environment, or through global warming, or through super AI, or there's there's several disaster scenarios that could happen. Um, you know, if you look at those kind of nightmare scenarios, and then you're dealing with a system that you cannot control its uh, process. You're left with very few options, and one of those options is to try to bring the system down now while we still have a kind of a modicum of control, and I think that's the basic point of his argument.
0: Indeed, and my problem with it is is really trying to find a path. You know, how would we get from where we are now to a better place? Well, where would what exactly would that better place be? Um, Obviously, very, very few people today would wish to – go back to Paleolithic, old Stone Age technology. There are a few Paleos out there, but they're mostly uh, trendy Paleos who like to you know, drink their coconut oil-flavored coffee and things like that. I'm one to a certain extent, (laughs) but I'm not sure I'm ready for the real Paleolithic. So we probably would want our path to lead us to something a little bit less extreme than that. And then
1: what would that path be? Well, exactly. I guess that's kind of the point I've been arguing, and I've tried to – to try to argue a similar line, but I've tried to take a more of a more of a rational approach where you recognize the need to do this, and maybe you take kind of systematic rational steps to deconstruct your system in some way, to try to unwind this process, you know in in some kind of managed way where it's not a chaotic thing and where it's not it it maybe takes a long time. You know people talk think about a revolution against the system and it's going to happen you know overnight or in a week or something. I mean, there's no reason that has to happen that way. It could take decades or a century if we sort of tackle it in a, in a kind of a rational way. And then if, if you can do that rationally, then you can sort of dial it back slowly over time and people will slowly get used to things or used to going without things. And then, and then you can sort of gauge your progress as you're going that way. It's not like suddenly tomorrow, boom, you'll know you're back in the Stone Age. That, that, does, that does not have to be the case.
0: And actually, one, one hopes it wouldn't because, of course, almost everybody would die out if it happened overnight. Uh, and, and Exactly.
1: That, that's right. That that would be terribly ca- catastrophic. So so the rational way is to try to do it slowly over a long period of time, recognizing the need to do it and kind of, you know, like I say, unwinding or deconstructing the system in, in kind of a controlled way. And, you know, I, I guess that's, that's the smart way to do it. The, the problem is it's, there's not a lot of evidence that we're capable of doing the smart thing. And we just seem to keep plowing ahead no matter what. Um, I guess my hope is it will take a minor disaster to kind of snap people into awareness that we need to do something. And then maybe we'll muster the strength to start to take action. Because if it's not a minor, you know, if it's not a minor catastrophe, it's going to be a major catastrophe. And then lots of people are going to die and it's going to be really bad.
0: Well, I, I hope uh, PNAC isn't listening to you because they they might go out there and stage a false flag minor catastrophe if. They- <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, maybe there's some ethical argument for that, for all I know. But, uh, because of course they're, you know, they're followers of the Straussian interpretation of Plato and his noble lie. So the neocons think, hey, we have a huge problem with Islam. By we, they actually probably mostly mean Israel. But let's, uh, let's put out there, uh, put out this platonic noble lie that Everybody has a huge problem with Islam. How will we do that? We'll stage an attack on America. And and so, you know, I, I would kind of hate to see something like that happen in the technological sphere. But, yeah, as far as a graduated uh, approach to this, I think that makes sense. And, you know, I think a landmark would be the conscious decision to give up uh, some particular technology because that's really – never happened in modern Western culture. The Chinese supposedly did, to some extent, perhaps consciously eschew the military use of gunpowder for a while. There are other examples like that. Uh, They consciously chose not to use their gigantic warships to conquer and colonize and so on. Uh, But in modern Western history, if it's there, we do it. And that's a terrible precedent. And I wonder if breaking that in some big way could actually start things moving in the right direction. There are these technologies that are obviously candidates for absolute banning, such as germline genetic engineering. If that goes online, we're really screwed, man. That's a, you know, that would be parents would have to pay a lot of money to some corporation to tweak the genes of their children. And, you know, if you didn't make your kid, you know, a high IQ, you know, Mozart level genius musician who was a you know, seven foot tall basketball player and all this stuff, uh, you know, your kid is going to be last in the class. And so the rich are going to make their kids first in the class. Everybody else is going to cough up money to try to keep up with their kids. And all these kids are going to grow up saying, what am I, a Frankenstein monster? And this is a scenario for absolute hell. So there's one technology that it should be possible to just ban. You know, I I mean, I would if I were a a lawmaker, I would obviously ban that one. And then maybe we could start thinking about should other technologies be banned as well? And once that's thinkable, maybe we could start moving in the direction you're suggesting.
1: Yeah, right. I agree that you know it's, it's it's it would be nice to start with a specific, obvious case like that. Uh, that that's certainly true, you know. That um, and that's it's not just in genetic engineering. There's a lot of aspects of technology where it's this competitive scenario, and if you try to dial back in one particular area, the defenders of the system will jump in and say, "Well, somebody else is going to do it. Someone, other our competitor or our enemy, will take this technology and they will develop it. So we have to do it. So we have no choice." And you see this argument over and over again when you look at the technology literature, and uh, yeah, it's it's kind of ironic, you know, how people claim that we we have some kind of control, but then they'll keep saying, but we have no choice. We have to advance it. We have no choice. You, you see this over and over again. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, uh, there's lots of lots of horrendous scenarios out there. Um, you know, military technologies are terrible. You, God knows what the military's working on now. Uh, you know. <laughs> Killer nano drones, or God knows what they're working on, and uh, you know if that stuff yeah, what, gets out. What could out, possibly
0: go wrong with that?
1: <laughs> exactly. Autonomously possibly, guided
0: killer nano drones that make the decision about who to kill on their own. What could possibly go wrong?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, you you can only imagine what the military is working on, and you only hear uh, you know probably one percent of what they're actually doing. So, um yeah, it's going to be i don't know it's it's a really it's really a tough situation you know you'd like to take a few things and try to try to snap the public into awareness it's almost has to be a global thing you know if you want to try to get rid of a, the competitive issue you almost have to appeal to the i don't know i hate to go to the u n but some kind of international appeal to to try to get people collectively to to dial back on these most dangerous technologies and if we can do that as you say then maybe we have a pathway to 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 dialing back other things and then and then maybe we have a hope of survival.
0: You know, sorry, I just had a long pause there because I have this horrible pop-up window that jumps in front of the unmute button on <laughs> my computer. <laughs> what, a, what a moment for that to happen. Yeah, and yeah, that's just one of so many illustrations of the loss of control over our technological gizmos. It seems that with each new generation, they are coming up with more ways to deprive us of agency. You know, whether it's something as seemingly benign as taking away the manual window. Uh, controls so you can roll up a window in a car. They all used to you know, be roll-up windows that you would have a little lever, and you'd do it with your muscle power. And then they have these automatic ones. And, and the next thing you know, the car is automatically locking itself when you get out of your car, perhaps locking your keys sitting there on the front seat, and so on and so forth. And I find myself going through life screaming, I didn't want to do that, you stupid machine. <laughs> Why are you making these decisions for me? Uh, <laughs> Uh, sure. it's getting worse all the time. So even at that level, but of course the military level you're mentioning is, is perhaps the worst one. And, and you're right. And this is a real challenge to those folks out there who really are terrified by the idea of a global government. Uh, and I, I am really among them in many respects. If, if we had a global government, we would have nowhere to run. You know, right now I can at least go on Iran's press TV and tell the truth. Um, I can, I used to be able to go on Russia today and tell the truth until the global syndicate managed to get to them. Um, And once there's a global government in charge of the media, I probably will have to just uh, shut up (laughs) and, uh, I don't know, uh, start bombing people like Ted Kaczynski. Just kidding, Mr. NSA spy. (laughs) Yeah, it is frustrating.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why the, the, the globalists of the world, they need this advanced technology because it's tremendously to their advantage. So, so they don't want to talk about any dialing back or you know retrenching or uh, you know relinquishment or any of these kind of things. They they don't want to talk about that at all because it really gets to the root of their power over over people and over the whole planet. You you can't exercise that control without a very advanced high power technology at your disposal. So they're going to fight that that process all the way because that's the basis of their power. And uh, you know, the radical guys like Kaczynski understand that, and they're going to say, "Hey, you can't reason with these people because they're lunatics." So what you have to do is, uh, you know, take the fight to them and, and actively start undermining the system in, in some in some ill-defined way, because uh, they they won't listen to reason when it comes to this uh, this, this this issue.
0: And, and as far as that idea for a revolution goes, you know, and I actually ha- I haven't finished Technological Slavery; I'm maybe two-thirds through it, so I I haven't fully. Uh, finished the part in which he describes his revolution that he's calling for. But thus far, it it, it doesn't really sound very realistic. Uh, and uh, I, I also think it's interesting that, you know, Ted Kaczynski is among the most individualistic people in a relatively individualistic culture you know western culture especially the usa where we're we're hanging on to our guns and you know for this you know championing the second amendment while the rest of the world rolls its eyeballs and you know we are rugged individualists here and kaczynski is the most rugged of the lot and even if he managed to convince enough people in the u.s to be you know to, to follow this kind of uh, approach I do wonder whether China, for example, which has a very different history and culture, which is a lot more collectivist um, would be equally open to these ideas
1: well you're right i uh, that's a good question right i i don't I don't know enough about the Chinese or oriental attitudes towards technology to, to tell you whether they'd be better off or worse off it's It's hard to say at this point but um but you know Kaczynski himself you know he he has a kind of a plan for the for the revolution against the system, but he but he's um, he's restricted, right, because of the the conditions of writing within prison, and everything that he writes that he sends out. He sent he sent me many letters over the years. Uh, everything that he sends out is is screened by the Bureau of Prisons, so he has to be very careful what he what he writes about. So, so if he has a great idea
0: for a revolution, we'll never know about it.
1: Well. <laughs> Well, that, that's true. Unfortunately, that's true. If it, if it's, you know, if it's too specific, I guess I don't really know exactly what the rules are, but but I do know that he was not allowed to talk about obviously violence in any way, bombings, killing people. I mean, anything like that. Well, he makes that point uh, he, though. That, he, that was really he, a forbidden topic. He and, makes that uh, point. The reason was. <laughs> he, yeah, but he, but, but the, the reason book. was the bureau. <clears laughs> the Bureau of Prisons would have used that. If he tried to write something like that, they would have used it as a, as a rationale to cut off all communication uh, with the outside world. But the, the way so I, I read those passages of his
0: book, it, it sounds like he's uh, he's being self-consciously ironic. And I, I was kind of surprised they let, they let it get through because he, there's at least one point in the book where he says something like, uh, well, of course, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't say advocate for violence because if I did, the Bureau of Prisons wouldn't let you read it. So no, no, I'm certainly not advocating violence, but, the tone was such that uh, I doubted his sincerity.
1: Well, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. I mean, he has to word things carefully, right? It's not really a question of sincerity. I think it's just how he has to word things to get the message out. Uh, but I guess you know the other the other sort of interesting point is the manifesto itself, which was not subject to any kind of oversight because that was prior, obviously prior to the prison situation. The manifesto, he was free to write anything that he wanted. And and even there he did not say, you know, go out and start sending mail bombs or start killing people. There there's nothing in the manifesto about about, you know, conducting a violent revolution. Um in fact he says it may or may not be violent a couple times in, in the manifesto. So mm-hmm. so, you know, he's pretty pretty wide open on different different means, I think, and different options that that uh, people might take to undermine the system. And it could be something simple like, you know, just purchasing choices individual personal choices consumer choices right and it it could be sort of passive resistance it it could be civil disobedience you know all the way up to very active and direct kind of action sort of thing so you you can imagine there's a whole range of things that people conceivably could do that would count as a as a kind of a revolt against the system and uh, you know he i mean some things are obvious some things he just leaves unsaid and i i think maybe that's the best way he could do it
0: mhm right well uh, it's it's such a, a huge issue and, and such a difficult issue, really, for imagining solutions. But I think he's made an important contribution, and I think it was useful of you to edit his book. Um, uh, is there a relationship between this topic and uh, another topic that you're an expert on, which is panpsychism, which envisions the universe as essentially mind, and specifically that all of the different you know, aspects of the universe, everything in the universe has some degree of mind. Uh, and I, I'm uh, attracted to that argument. It's interesting also that uh, if you go to Wikipedia to find out who are the experts on panpsychism, the four people that they list, uh, it includes you and David Ray Griffin, uh, two notable American dissidents, uh, <laughs> whose, whose work I admire. So uh, right. yeah, do you think that's a yeah, coincidence? I, don't know, that's,
1: <laughs> I think that's a sheer coincidence, but I <laughs> I don't know how to explain that one. That's kind of an interesting point. Uh-huh. Um. But, uh, yeah, I mean, right, I mean, it sounds like a very different topic. I mean, in a sense it is, right, Uh, shifting to philosophy of mind. Um, uh, But, even, I mean, even there is a kind of a connection there, right? I mean, in my book, The Metaphysics of Technology, I I included one chapter that, you know, the technological system sort of has this kind of intelligence in it. It seems to function in an an intelligent way. And that's almost what you would expect if you had a universe in which things were pretty much – you know, universally capable of some kind of experiential consciousness or subjectivity or or intentionality or or intelligence in some way, right? So systems that are complex, you would expect to have relatively more complex minds, and, and simple things would have relatively simple minds, if you will. And so a complex technological system may have a very kind of a complex consciousness of some kind, and maybe a kind of a complex will that that we don't quite understand. So there's an interesting overlap uh, I think between the technological situation and the and the panpsychic situation and I think they they are compatible and they work together in, in very interesting ways.
0: Yes and that's uh, not necessarily good news for us. There's a book that I read a while back called Darwin Among the Machines by George Dyson who argues that the uh, technology we see overtaking us is doing that precisely because it is capable of mind and it probably already has one. And it's probably already had one for quite some time. And as far as I can determine from, from my understanding of what Dyson is saying in this book, he's essentially telling us that we are doomed to be replaced by our machines, which by these sort of Darwinian mechanisms are going to surpass and supplant us, maybe sort of like what we did to Neanderthals, only probably a, a whole lot more quickly and <laughs> definitively.
1: Well, right. I mean, that's a that's very interesting argument. It's an old argument, in fact, that the title of, of that book from Dyson comes from an essay by Samuel Butler, who was a British essayist who wrote a, a short essay of that title in 1859. And he was just becoming aware of Darwinian evolution. And he immediately looks to the mechanical world, to the world of machines, and they're simple machines. You're talking, you know, 1850s level technology. But even then, he can see that the machines are evolving faster than the biological systems, the biological organisms around us, right, at the time. So even Butler, or even back 150-plus years ago, could could, uh, could see that, yeah, maybe there's an evolutionary process going on and the machines are going a lot faster than we are and he said you know it won't take long and they're going to they're going to roll right by us and he was he Butler was thinking well shoot maybe they'll keep us around as pets and maybe it'll sort of be tolerable uh but i think that was a very optimistic uh outlook actually
0: yeah yeah and yeah. more and more people are are uh, jumping on that bandwagon these days uh and some of them saying it's inevitable who was it uh the uh that uh british independent scientist who came up with the Gaia theory with Lynn Margulis What's that? Lovelock James Lovelock Uh, his most recent stuff which is he shifted his alarmism from global warming and for, for a while he was he was 10 times worse than Al Gore as far as saying you know things are are gonna you know we're gonna broil the earth may turn into the surface of Venus due to global warming and then he stopped worrying about it he says because long before that happens the artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, uh, artificial life organisms we've created are going to kill us off. And they'll probably be able to inhabit a planet whose surface is like Venus just fine. So let's not worry about it. And of course, my reaction to that is, (laughs) what? Not worry about it?
1: (laughs) Uh, I know you're right. I I saw that that was just a recent thing that uh, Lovelock came out with. Um, Yeah, I don't know. That's a little, I'm not sure I buy his, his, his approach. I mean, he's, He's getting a little up there in age. You got to wonder about his ability to think clearly. But, uh, but definitely, I mean, the threat from AI is definitely real. We've heard that in recent years from Stephen Hawking, from Bill Gates, from Elon Musk.
0: Bill, Joy. I mean, a lot
1: of these guys who have inside knowledge of what's going on and they're worried. And and then and then you know you got to know that it's probably even worse than that. So, if those guys are worried, and I'm definitely worried. So, yeah, we got some big big problems that we're facing in the not too distant future.
0: And that's where panpsychism actually is is not really going to make us any more optimistic, quite the opposite because there are folks who say that well, maybe there's some special kind of soul or consciousness that we living creatures have that these computers could never possibly have, and therefore they aren't really going to ever become our competitors and then the the opposite View to that, The normal opposite view is, is the one that Dyson takes in Darwin Among the Machines, in which he says, well, just put this whole issue of consciousness aside. You don't need consciousness. These machines, whether or not they were quote-unquote conscious or intentional, they're just going to keep doing what they do. And at some point, they're going to get out of control. And by doing it, it, does it really matter to us whether we call them conscious when they just start sucking up all of the available energy in their environment and competing with those things that compete with them like us and then putting them out of business and taking over more and more and more of the available energy sources of the universe? Uh, Who cares whether they're conscious or not? That's just what they're going to do. Uh, But uh, the panpsychism argument is even more pessimistic because then they are at least just as conscious as we are. Which means that their potential for supplanting us is is even greater than people like Dyson would suggest.
1: Yes, that's that's right. If, if that's true, that there really is a consciousness behind these systems, which means there is a kind of real intentionality and a kind of will and, uh, you know, belief system and a moral code, which is very different from our sense of morals. So I, I think that poses a a, a huge problem if uh, if in fact that's true and. Yeah, every, every way you look at it, it looks like a bad situation. So the sooner the sooner people realize that and the sooner we begin to think about taking action, that's that's our best hope for survival, I think.
0: Right, and there is the defeatist position out there. Uh, the optimistic defeatist position, uh, as I recall, has been expressed by Rudy Rucker, who's a science fiction writer I've kind of enjoyed at times. Uh, I think Wet Wear was one of his books. Uh, and he, I think, is, is essentially embracing panpsychism or some variety of it, and imagining these artificially intelligent robot creatures or cyborgs or what have you that are absolutely the equals of humans really in, in every meaningful way. And Rucker is then just kicking back and smoking a joint or whatever he was smoking. I think he was smoking something for sure <laughs> and saying, oh, that's all right, whatever, you know, whatever. It's cool. It's all cool. You know, Uh, uh it's uh, you know, almost a kind of a bizarre you know Frankenstein's monster, caricature of sort of the you know Islamic uh, uh, optimism. You know where we we Muslims have this kind of incorrigible optimism because our you know, our Prophet uh, peace upon him was uh, so victorious, even though he had such a tough situation. So we, and it's and plus we have this kind of oh well everything is always by Allah, so it's ultimately okay attitude built in. Well, Rudy Rucker has this weird, you know, cyberpunk <laughs> version of that. Uh, but somehow that kind of defeatism strikes me as inadequate, because it seems to me that we really are facing something uh, that's malevolent in some sense, something that maybe shouldn't be that we've we've messed with creation in a way that we shouldn't have.
1: Yeah, that's right. I I, I think that's uh, certainly the case. You know, it may. Yeah. You know, it's a question of whether it's sort of a consciously evil system, or if it's just doing what it does, you know, I think that's probably what Dyson was suggesting, that these things are just going to do what they're going to do, and it's going to turn out to be horribly negative for humanity and probably the rest of the planet, so from our perspective, certainly, it's a, it's an evil outcome, and um, yeah, I don't know, I mean, sh- to, to do nothing, or just to sort of sit back and say, well, that's the way it goes, or it's God's will, or that's destiny, I mean, to, to me, that's just suicide, so you know, to to me, if you've got to hope for survival, you've got to fight back and you've got to defend yourself, and that's kind of been the way evolution has gone the whole way. I mean, organisms fight for their own well-being and their own defense, and you know, it may shift gears in the near future, and we may be fighting tooth and nail for our own our own survival, and and we probably should get ready for that.
0: Wow, get ready for the war against the machines. <laughs> Uh, it's funny. That, no, I mean, it you know. sounds
1: like a Terminator movie or something. I hate to say it, but you know, that may be closer to reality than, than we think, or than than we would like to believe.
0: Right. Well, those people, uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie that somebody made warning us about killer robots, that there's a campaign to ban killer robots and a bunch of the leading lights of the you know, cutting edge of the techno world have contributed to this. And they made a, a a film, a scary film showing what happens once the killer robots are unleashed, the flying, you know, artificially intelligent uh, sentient killer robots uh, and it is a uh, kind of a, a frightening commercial and mainly because it's uh it's portraying a scenario that they think is is very feasible very credible
1: yeah and you know it's amazing the way these uh, these things are getting physically more uh agile uh rapidly there's uh, there's some videos that really even shocked me that were on youtube I think they were just listed under the heading of agile robots or something like that. But they were jumping, so they're like you know hum- humanoid type robots, and they're and they're they're running, they're jumping, they're doing backflips. I mean, they're really amazingly uh, coordinated physically, because you still have this picture in your mind of like a lumbering, you know, sluggish, uh, you know, robot kind of character. You just knock him over and he couldn't get up. But but these new these new robots are really incredible how how they can move and jump and run. It's like uh, yeah, you marry that kind of capability with a, with a high level of intelligence and some kind of autonomy, and you could have serious trouble really, really quick.
0: And then remember that the Pentagon as I, and the other countries' militaries are undoubtedly very interested in this stuff. You know, they love super soldiers. They They're already interested in sort of robotizing humans to turn them into killing machines because human nature is not given to murdering other people except in self-defense or in extreme anger. And so to turn people right. into aggressive you know, killers, you have to brainwash them using some form of technology or a technique. And uh, S.L.A. Marshall was the general who oversaw that process. He, there was a big study post-World War II about why is it that only you know, 15 percent or, or less of uh, the grunt soldiers will actually shoot to kill and The other 85 percent are uh, what he called de facto conscientious objectors who will fire into the air, They will, you know, step back and just hand other guys the ammunition, but they will not try to kill anybody. So how do we overcome this? And so S.L.A. Marshall oversaw these Pentagon programs that were able to brainwash uh, normal American young people to become vicious, aggressive killers essentially by appealing to their their racism and xenophobia with basic training, you know, dressing up realistic looking enemies that you kill in your training, you know, and you you scream about the the gooks if you're going to fight the Vietnamese or the hajis if you're going to fight the Muslims. And so they totally dehumanize these young Americans in in boot camp these days to turn them into killers. And they got it up to 50 percent would actually kill voluntarily in Korea and 90 percent would in Vietnam. But, of course, this wreaked havoc on people's psyches. And so the non-psychopathic majority of young American men coming back from these wars have been really messed up. And uh, so we see that the military loves to try to take uh, human beings who are not into aggressive killing and turn them into vicious killer robots. But if they can just make vicious killer robots without even bothering to bring the human into it, somehow I don't think that's going to be uh, much better for humanity.
1: Well, no, you're right. I and I and I suspect that's the way they're gonna go. They you know, there's there's just I'm sure they've run into so many problems, as you say, psychological disorders and to try to turn people into killing machines. It's just is just, you know, I'm I'm sure it's very hard to do on any kind of large scale basis. And, and 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 the and the robot technology and the AI technology by itself is is, is accelerating much faster, I'm sure, than the ability to, to brainwash people to become psychopathic killers. So I'm guessing the military is just giving up on trying to con- convince people to do it, and then they'll just still have the robots, the artificial intelligence machines do it, and that will be far easier. And, and And they're probably gonna probably gonna shift gears. They're probably in the process of doing that right now, when they're developing their their autonomous drones and intelligent drone systems that they, that those things can do the killing. And then you know, then we just kind of sit back and watch watch the action. But unfortunately, the action is going to come to us uh, sooner than we like, and it's going to be right here on our home territory. and and then it's, then it's not going to be fun, right? You know, right now it's fun with those drones are over there in the Middle East, and then it's kind of cool. We can watch them on our little video screens from Nevada, and nobody cares. But when those things are flying over, you know, Detroit or Madison, Wisconsin, and sh- sh- gunning down people, then it's going to be a whole new story, right?
0: Yeah, and that's where, you know, there are such different scenarios. You know, the dystopian scenario, the, you know, the rulers use this kind of technology to keep people enslaved, Unfortunately, of course, that's all too likely. One could imagine a kind of a benevolent World War III scenario. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, of course, but one could imagine that the strategists would say, okay, we got to take out the other side's ability to fight, right? Because that's the definition of what you do in a war is you're essentially trying to make sure the other side gives up and stops fighting. So we're going to have to go after their command and control. So our killer robots first would target their killer robots And then maybe we would also target the programmers of the killer robots and the powerful humans who are in charge of the whole program. So we would just take out the top level of the other side, just completely take them out. But maybe they would also take our top level out, and then the rest of us down here at the bottom level would be liberated. (laughs) Is that incorrigibly optimistic?
1: Kind of a mutual... Mutual actual destruction at the top. Is that exactly that what you're talking the, the, about? the
0: suicide of all the elites? They fight a world war, and the elites, for strategic reasons, target each other and take each other out, right, leaving right. the rest of us to inherit the meek to inherit <laughs> the earth.
1: I guess that's one thing to hope for. But you know, even if that happens, you still got your robots running around, running running amuck, right, without any leadership or control, and and then and now they're calling the shots, and there's nobody telling them what to do, and. You know, then that then that could get out of hand. Then yeah, it's what just, could possibly come <laughs>